men, amen. The title of the very first sermon of our new series, Church, is this, Taking Care of Old Business. Everybody say business. I don't believe you. Say it again. Say business. Thank you. I just wanted to hear you say business. Uh, when I, for those of you that don't know, I used to work at Chick-fil-A. Right when COVID hit, uh, my wife lost her job and all that, so I had to go and get another job before we came here, and, uh, and it was a blessing from God, but it was a challenging time. But amidst all the challenges, my favorite shift that I would prefer to work, that I never got to work, and I'm so mad about it, was the opening shift. I loved being there early in the morning. I prefer to get my work done early in the day, and you had to be there at 4.30, uh, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, specifically because in the morning, especially when you're working in the restaurant business of any kind, you got to prep. You got to food prep. You got to get your fryers going. You got to get the stoves hot. You got to get everything prepped so that you can just keep pumping out all of the food throughout the day. And I absolutely love doing that. You want to know why? Because before we opened at 7 a.m., it was just There were no lines. There were no nothing. There were only like three of us working in the back kitchen, just getting everything going. And I loved it because I didn't have to deal with nobody's garbage all day. It was the best. So I I, I love doing that. But I never got to work that shift. But that's that's a different story for another day. When I did work that shift, uh, one of the things that hit me uh, the third time I worked that shift was my responsibility now to work solo and get the entire back half of the back of house ready to go. The fryers, the milk wash, the, the breading, the chicken filleted, all that. I had to get all that done. That was a lot of work, and I had a certain time constraint that I had to accomplish and finish it by. Uh, so the first two times, I had help. Uh, but then the last time, it's like, all right, you're running solo. And I wasn't even supposed to run solo yet, but the, the supervisor got sick. Uh, and so I got a text, like, right then and there, like, you are solo, good luck. And I'm like, oh, geez, all right, I got this. And I realized the amount of pressure that was on me because if I didn't take care of every order of business prior to opening, it would have been a colossal meltdown in every single other area of the restaurant. The workers at the drive-thru would start backing up and people would get upset because we're in the kitchen not able to keep up with the orders because we're still lagging behind because we haven't even gotten the fryers going yet or whatever it might have been. We didn't fillet enough chicken. The bottom line was I realized the amount of diligence and pressure that was demanded for the prep work prior to opening. And I think that that's just really important for us to recognize as a church, as we look to the book of Acts in particular. Because as we're going to see today in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave very specific instructions to his followers. And as we're going to see, those instructions demanded that they take care of old business first before new business could be taken care of. So I'm excited to get into that. But before I do, let me just let you know uh, briefly about the book of Acts. Um, Do you have these cards that you had on your seat? These are notes that we're going to be able to like fill in the blanks for you in case you're not a note taker or you are a note taker. Then this is right up your alley. It's, It's for you to use. You don't have to, but we would encourage you to do it. 
uh, because I am not a note taker, but I'll even admit when I take notes, man, it sinks in. And I love having something to go back to to be able to talk and reflect upon what I learned. So these are for you. Use them. Um, also, at the bottom, you'll see five days with a Bible reading plan. Uh, your group leaders in the love groups do have this information if you lose this, so they can give this to you. But we want you to have this at the beginning of every week so that you can have a devotional plan to follow if you don't have one. And what's really good about this is this is all based on the book of Acts. We're starting in the book of Luke because the same man who authored the New Testament book of Acts also authored Luke. And there's a lot that coincides with it. It's kind of like the prequel to the story that we're going to be going through for the next eight weeks. So this week, you're really taking in a lot of reading through the book of Luke. And then finally, if you're not really sure how to read your Bible, and I know this sounds crazy, but again, it's a good reminder for us, or maybe some of you need direction. Maybe some of you open up your Bible and, okay, you even have the scriptures, which sometimes you don't know what to read. But now, like, how do I read this? What do I do with it? For me, it's, it's a lot to read. There's a really simple acronym that is a tip for you to follow as you're going through your devotions. It's called SOAP, which stands for Scription, Observation, Application, Prayer. So in other words, you have your scripture, you stop, you read it. As you're reading it, you write down or circle or highlight, however you want to do it, your observations. Like, oh, that's really interesting. That's, I'm curious about that. Or I see this word a lot. must be important. And you just highlight. You make your observations. Maybe write down some full questions that you have on a separate piece of paper. Then when you're finished with it, you stop and you really consider, hey, how does all of the scripture and my observations that I made really apply to my life? How, how does God want me to put into practice the things that I've read? And then finally, you do what you need to do, you pray. And you say, God, everything that I've learned, help me to put into practice. And let me just say this, if you're a person that prays but isn't in the word, uh, your praying is aimless. It's not that you always need the Bible, but the Bible ought to always influence your prayers, always. Otherwise, it's just like, uh, let me go through the list, uh, family, country, uh, job, miss anything? All right, I'm good, I got it. It's like, that's not what prayer should be about. It's, it's an honest conversation. A, a, a reverence between you and God Almighty saying, God, here I am. Here's what I see in your word. I see your will. Help me. So we've offered that to you, and we're going to give this to you every week with a new reading plan. So I would encourage you to take this home, but worst comes to worst, ask your small love group leader about that. All right, so now back to our sermon series. As we're tracking together, the book of Acts was a book that was really recording the events that transpired following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it really tracks the story of his followers, especially in the beginning, his original now 11, since Judas is no longer in the picture. And what a lot of commentators and scholars argue about is, what's the genre of the book of Acts? And trust me, this is important. You're like, who cares? It's important. It, it, is it an epistle? No. Is it history? Is it narrative? We're not going to get into what it could be. This isn't that kind of class. This is just me trying to help instruct you in a way that will help deepen your devotional life as you read this book. Ultimately, here's what I would say we ought to view the book of Acts as in the category of genre. This is from my mouth. This isn't substantive based on scholarly research. Let me say it this way. It's not going to be on the screen, so listen. Acts is a story about men and women who followed God's way rather than their own. 
And as we go through these chapters of this book over the next eight weeks, you're going to really, as you read and go deeper throughout the week, see, wow, this is what happens when no matter how hard it was, men and women obeyed God's will. And in some instances, here's what happens when they didn't. And, and I just think that's a really good way to set the stage for all that we're about to unpack together over the next eight weeks. So let's get into it. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read the first eight verses, which say this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who had chosen him. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to him, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my, not warriors, In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's talk about the first few verses of Acts chapter 1. First and foremost, Luke is the author of this book, and he's writing a second of a two-series volume. Luke, the gospel, is the first. This is the second volume. Acts is the follow-up, like we said. And he's writing it to a man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know much about him. It's surmised that he was not Jewish. He was Greek. He might have had a lot of political influence he might have been in some sort of roman position of leadership in their governmental system who had been converted or was in the process of conversion and is just trying to go through all of the questions of faith understand jesus understand his word and really we see from the beginning how he's trying to be very evidential and very analytical by saying jesus himself gave many convincing proofs that he rose from the dead that's the start our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, it's pointless. Now he's going to go on and he's going to really use another argument throughout the entire book of Acts. Why is it that men and women in the face of persecution and uncertainty are faithful to a God they can't see? How come when they are being forced to renounce their faith under the penalty of death, should they not comply with government rules? Are they continually standing firm and saying, no matter what you do to me, I will never turn on my Savior? And the book of Acts is really an argument proving how either the faith that these individuals have is completely insane, but how are all of these people drinking the Kool-Aid, man? I mean, how or 
got married. Maybe, just maybe it's true. And that's kind of kind of the start of this book. And, and now he, he's recounting the, the last words of Jesus to his disciples while he's on earth, before he ascends and promises to come back. And the first thing that Jesus says is, his instructions are, go to Jerusalem and wait. Just go and wait. And think about it. These are guys that have followed Jesus for three and a half years, and they've gone all over the place. And they've done ministry. They've cast out demons. They've healed people. They've seen the multiplying of the five loaves and the two fish. They've seen waters part. They're thinking like, all right, Jesus, you obviously showed your power that not even death has hold on you. So what's next? What, what do you got in store next? I'm leaving. You go back to Jerusalem. The, the, the hot spot for Christianity right now where I was just crucified. And you wait for what I've got coming for you. The gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father's going to send. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, we see a contrast here. Uh, it, it, if you realize Jesus made a, made a comparison. He goes, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a lot of implications there. But when we really think about the baptism of, of John. And his ministry, the cousin of Jesus, who was deceased at this point, put to death for his faith by, by King Herod. John's ministry was about preparation for Jesus who was to come. Think about it. When you see John in the beginning of the book of Mark, the gospel, it says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And there is one who is coming. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. It's Jesus. And when he first sees Jesus, wishes his disciples, he goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who I've been preparing the way for, being obedient to, he's here. John's baptism was about repentance and preparation for the end, but what was really the beginning, the, the finality of the old ways, and now Jesus coming to, to finish it all, to fulfill it all. Now Jesus says, he doesn't do away with the practice of baptism, we still do that, but here he says, recognize that baptism was about repentance. The baptism that I'm going to give you is about power. Because now you've got to move past that place of having a changed life and, and repentance. Now you need to be empowered to now go and do the work that I've called you to do. All right. So how do the disciples respond to Jesus? And remember, these are, these are just the 11 now. His, his original gang. He, minus Judas, it's the 11, the, the big capital A apostles. Their response to Jesus is fascinating. Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom, the authority, the right to rule over the nations to Israel? What's the problem with this question? Let me give you this point. They misunderstood the purpose of the gift. They misunderstood the purpose of the gift. Here's the thing. Their question wasn't even a horrible question, and it wasn't even a wrong question, because think about it. Jesus, in the eternal scheme of things, is coming back. We're waiting for his second coming, and he's going to establish a millennial reign where the sons and daughters of God, us, will be established on this earth with him on the throne, and we're going to rule over the nations. Revelation talks about it. So that question wasn't even wrong, but it was misguided by their past. 
So, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, uh, before I get into a little bit of history for you, uh, I, I, I think their question is kind of funny because they're thinking about actual tactical literal warfare. They're thinking, Jesus, okay, you're going to give us a gift from the Father. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like, man, He's part of the waters. He's multiplied, but she casts out demons. He's risen from the dead. I mean, he's going to give us like lightning fingers. We're going to go and like shoot people down in Israel. Like I'm just laughing, thinking about this thing. Like what was going through their heads? Like they thought they were going to be made in like Zeus God form. And who, who knows what was going through their head? But that's probably what they equated this gift with, a literal weapon of warfare or some way to establish themselves. Now, why? Would they have this preconceived notion in spite of the fact that the three and a half years that Jesus lived, he showed them, I've not come for war. I've not come to, to, to cause pain in this sense. There's going to be division that's caused, but that's because of heart issues, not war. So why would they think this? Well, I think it's because of their history. So let me just give you a brief bit of Jewish history because these men are Jewish by, by heritage. So how many of you have ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Okay, some of you, good, I, I like this. All right, so let me give you a little bit of history. The first picture that I have for you, and the only picture about this, is just a representation of what we have uh, in history of the Maccabean Revolt. Ultimately, uh, in 167 BCE, CE, what, however you want to categorize it, it's always changing, common era. This is roughly 167 years before Christ was born. So just over one and a half centuries. So that's a long time, but it's really not especially for uh, a group of individuals that held so fast to their traditions and their heritage. And 167 years ago, as Alexander the Great was, was uh, conquering the entire known world and Hellenizing the world, which means he was bringing it all under into a common culture, a common tongue, where everybody would speak the same language, no matter their ethnicity. That sounds like America, right? It's like everybody speaks American. Um, and Alexander the Great is a conqueror that no one has ever seen the likes of. But he dies, and then his kingdom gets split up into four particular divisions. I'm not going to get super into all of that, but one of the divisions housed the Jews, at least largely as they were comprised where they lived geographically. And they were doing well under this particular kingdom-divided rule. But then one of the other kingdoms of the four came and conquered that kingdom, and that new leader of now this place where the Jews resided didn't like the freedoms that Jews had to practice of their particular religion. And so what the government started to do was they would literally build gymnasiums right next to the Jewish synagogues for people to go and to do their sports, kind of like the Olympics. And what the Greeks were really proud of was they would do all of their sports in the full nude. Uh, like, no joke, they would, that's why we see statues of, of naked people all the time. They thought it was something to be proud of, to just walk around in the nude. And it was something that was very, 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 very uh, difficult for Jews to be around and accept. And so the government was doing everything they possibly could to make the Jews uncomfortable to the point where finally they said, okay, we are enacting new legislation that you have to comply with. And literally in history, we see an account of a Roman ruler coming and enforcing one of the Jewish priests, maybe synagogue leaders, we don't know exactly, uh, Judas Matthias, later known as Maccabeus, to sacrifice an animal to a pagan god, which is an unbelievably huge no-no. And he refused. 
And then all of a sudden, as history has it, another man of the Jewish community said, I, I don't, I don't want to be on the government's bad side. I don't know what they have. They might have persecution for a sec. So he comes forward and tries to comply. And Matthias, Maccabeus, kills the dude right then and there. And there's this famous quote in the book of Maccabees, which we don't have in our Bible, but it's in the Catholic Bible, specifically saying that he pretty much rallies everybody and said, if you're if you're a zealot, if you are for the law, if you're for the original covenant for Judaism, you'll follow me. And historically, we have this huge revolt of Jews that are actually really strong and really tactical and really put the government at the time on their heels. Uh, But eventually they were defeated. Eventually they were snuffed out and then we have the Roman Empire and the rest is history. Now, just think about that history for a moment. You have a group of individuals who are being persecuted for their faith and being led to compromise and give in and follow the ways of the world. It's no different 167 plus years later for the eleven. Jesus, we've gone through a lot. Look, you were killed. So now's got to be the time where you're going to establish Jews, Judaism, Israel, our race, as the heads over everyone else. They misunderstood the purpose of their gift. The idea of the history of Judas, Matthias, or Maccabeus is what's still celebrated today. Hanukkah. Right. And I even look at this history and while I don't agree with all of the ethical decisions of it, I can get behind the fact that they wanted to stand up for their faith. Christ wouldn't have wanted them to revolt and to murder and to kill. But I understand it. I see it happening in our country. Problem is. The disciples are looking to their past. And they're allowing their past to dictate what's before them now. And they say, obviously, we have to respond in like manner when this was never Jesus's way to begin with. They were convoluting the lines of Judaism with Christianity. The apostles and Jesus in this moment is going to remind them, hey, the focus of salvation is not for one group of people. It's not just the Jews. This is not a message against Judaism if you have Jewish roots. Jesus' response to the question. He says, not that you know the times or the seasons that the Father has set. So you want to know essentially what Jesus is saying right here? I love this. None of your business. Hey, Jesus, so when are you going to come back and when are we going to get it all? None of your business. So in other words, again, that shows us that their original question wasn't totally wrong. He's going to establish a rule and a reign that he is the king over one day on earth as it is in heaven. But when? How? None of your business. Stop worrying about it. So in other words, let me say it this way. Christians ought to be concerned about representation, not speculation. And we do that all the time in the church. If we're being real, we're always, well, I wonder, or what do you think about this? Or how could it be this way? And sometimes those questions are okay. But ultimately, Jesus is showing the apostles, go, wait, gift is going to come so that you will be empowered to be my witnesses. Witnesses are representatives. 
We're described as Christians by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament as ambassadors. We carry the image of Christ with us. When the world sees us, they ought to see the embodiment of all that Jesus stood for. And Jesus here is saying, I'm going to empower you to be those very representatives of me. Even when it's the last thing on earth you are going to be comfortable doing. Stop speculating. It's none of your business. God's got that in control. Get to work. Ultimately, the gift wasn't meant to improve their circumstances, but empower their work. Jesus Jesus further responds to their question and turns it back on them, knowing their history and knowing their ideas that are where their question is rooted in. Remember the Maccabean history, revolt, establish us, the Jewish nation. He knows that that's probably some of what they have in their mindset. And his response, so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in Judea. So Jewish territory, but then Samaria, not Jewish territory. In fact, the the place comprised of people that Jews hated until the very ends of the earth. Jesus showed them that my salvation is not limited to one group of people based on their ethnicity. It's for all who choose to follow me. So, just as you're kind of, we're going through this text, but as we're kind of reflecting and trying to make some application, I want to ask you this question. Are you here today in this church as a believer for your own pleasure or to find purpose? And I really want you to think about that. Not don't feel too patchy, like, oh, yeah, it feels awesome. Good word, pastor. Forget that. Are you here? To find purpose, or are you just here to have your traditions affirmed, your lifestyles affirmed, your preferences affirmed, your speculations affirmed? Or are you just here to say, God, here I am, and I'm going to ask you to empower me. But I don't ask that lightly because I know that to be empowered means I'm going to be put to work. Because that power is just not for my pleasure. That power will lead to edification. But when you do the work that the power was supplied for. Keep going. Got a lot to cover. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So here's ultimately what's happening right here. Jesus gives the command. They have a little bit of confusion. He gives correction. An imaginary elevator. He's just like... Cloud, gone. And they're standing there, 11 dudes on top of a mountain. What just happened? 
you coming back? You got to be coming back, man. This is a joke, right? It's a joke, right? Then they hear, hey, and they look over and they see two angels. Men of Galilee, what are you doing? <laughs> got a lot of colloquialisms and cliches that I want to say that are inappropriate. What are you doing? Just standing around, kicking rock. What, what are you doing? Jesus gave you instructions. If you're standing here staring up into the sky, that means you haven't accepted instruction. In other words, you're not okay with what you've been commanded to do because you can't believe it. Or you can believe it, but you just, you can't believe the way that Jesus says he's going to empower you to do it. No, all right, Jesus, good idea. You coming back? Uh, we, you've been with us three and a half years. We got to do it that way. He gave you your instructions. Stop standing around. A lot of times uh, we know what we're supposed to do, but we have trouble accepting really uh, doing it. We know, come on, like all of us as Christians, we read the Bible all the time and we see God's marching orders, his direction, everything. And, and we just like, I know. Oh, man, but I just I don't know, man. I don't it's, I don't know that I can yet. I don't know that I'm ready yet. And listen, God's a gracious and merciful and patient God. He, he's going to be waiting for you all the while. He's never going to turn his back on you. But understand, as long as this is your posture what more do you want from God? He's like, I, I gave you exactly what it is that you're supposed to do. And you're crying out to me, God, where are you? He's like, I told you where I'm going. I'm coming back. Don't worry about when. Go and do what I told you to do. The disciples exhibited a timeless fault that we as human beings struggle with. A fixation on what was. Again, let's be fair. Three and a half years. The things that they saw got to be that Jesus way. That's got to be the way. And it, it will be. We're going to get to that in a moment. It, it will be. Um, but let me just finish this little chunk by saying this. Stop allowing what was to keep you from experiencing what God has for you now. Stop thinking like Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to lead us to do what he did before, right now, even though he just told, you mean even though he just told us to go and wait in Jerusalem to pray and, and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, 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 and all that, that's good and all, but uh, no, we, we, this way, as long as we're fixated on that, we're stuck. As long as we're looking at what was, what is is always going to be waiting as a possibility. Verse 12, here's how they responded. Remember the book of Acts? My, my, my idea of the genre, it's a story about men and women who followed God's way rather than their own way. They stepped in it a little bit with their questions. God corrected them. They still were kind of hesitant to actually step and move. God gives them a little bit more encouragement by sending messengers, his angels. Say, Come on, get with it. Here's their final response. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Good job. From the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present 
with Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let me give you this point, and then talk about it. The apostles' first response to uncertainty was God, I don't know exactly what it is that you are going to do, how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, but you said you're going to give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know your spirit. You've talked about your spirit. I've seen your spirit in your word since the beginning of creation, hovering over the waters itself. Obviously, you've got something new. Obviously, it's not a sword. Obviously, it's not lightning coming from our fingers. But you've got something. You've told me to go to Jerusalem. I'll go to Jerusalem. And what can I do? I'm just going to keep listening to you. I'm going to keep crying out to you. I'm going to keep waiting for your direction right now. The apostles adopted a posture of prayer. Here's the key in unity. Unity. Let me talk about that for a second. If you go back and you see verses 12 through 14, there's something we can't miss. We think it's just a list of names. It says, and the apostles, they returned to Jerusalem together on the Sabbath, together. Then it names them, all of them by name, the 11. This isn't, just, this isn't meant to be for historical purposes. Like, we got to know who's there. If you really study the Gospels and narrative and history, they're not concerned with the details. They're concerned with a purpose and a principle to get across. That's why sometimes not all the Gospels line up in certain situations. It's not because of error. It's because I'm not concerned with giving detailed, factual accounts. I just want you to know what God intended to be taught in this story. And here, the names are given not so that, oh, we can have a detailed account of who was there, but so that we would understand that every single one of Jesus' closest followers, his legacy, were all of one accord. And it says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly. The verbs that are used there has this idea of incessant perseverance. This idea of work that is hard fought after. They stood together in this moment and said, if all we can do is pray, then we're going to pray. Peter, I know you want to go out. No, come back here. We're going to pray right now. Zealot, Simon, I know that you are ready for blood right now because you're offended by what they did to Jesus, but come back here right now. We are going to stand together united in prayer. That's it. Huh. A small community makes a decision to obey Jesus' simple command, go and wait in the village. Their response. Let me tell you what they didn't do. They didn't go back to the glory days. I mean, think about that. I mean, I just want to, I want to remember what it was like to be with Jesus. Maybe I'll get over something someday. Let's go back to that hill where he robbed that kid of his lunch. Let's see if another kid comes by. Let's jump him and take his lunch and, and see if we can do what he did. Let's do that. what he did when he went to the temple during the Passover festival just, just a little while ago before he was crucified? Remember when he walked in and he was so utterly offended by how there were money changers and, and sellers of wares in that house? 
manipulating people in order for, for just to line their pockets. Do you, do you remember that? Let's go, let's go do that. That's what we should do. Let's go flip some tables, right? Remember that. Do you really want the king Peter, do you remember? Do you remember when when I beat you for the team? Remember that? Yeah, that was good, man. That's good stuff. Um, remember how good it felt to realize that that team was losing? Let's go back to the tomb. Let's go back to the grave and let's just sit there. Sounds really good, doesn't it? Tell me what Jesus wanted them to do. Don't reminisce about the past. You want to know what he said to them in John chapter 14 while he was still alive? He said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Because there is a new season. Because I'm no longer going to be the one to lead. And you follow, you're going to lead by my will, and others will follow you, and it will reciprocate. So what you need to do is go sit and wait, and I'll show you what to do next. Here, here's, the, here's the next stone for you. Prayer, it builds unity. If we're always speculating about what we could do, ought to do, should do, need to do, we're always going to disagree at some point, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But if we are not first and foremost united in prayer, if prayer is not your first measure but your last resort, there's going to be problems. Rather than going and trying to do, 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 be, 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 pray. And we see right here, it binded them together. We'll see later in Acts how it was selling of properties and, and preaching and even being persecuted together. That solidified that bond, but it started with just pure obedience that said, let's pray. Prayer builds unity. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Can you pause there? Guys, can you put up that picture? For me, the second picture that I have for you. Okay, this is a picture relatively of the ancient Near East in the New Testament time when you would read your Bibles. Now, I tried to keep it clean. It doesn't have all the names. It's little abbreviations. But all the way over here, little purplish, pinkish dot is essentially Jerusalem. It's as small as we can make the dot. It's technically smaller, but it doesn't matter. This is Jerusalem. And over the weeks to come, over these next eight weeks, we're going to see this rapidly expand. This represents the Christian community that we're reading about in Acts chapter 1. This represents 120 individuals that united together in the very city that was out for blood. That if anyone even whispered about that Jesus... They were going to be snuffed out. They were going to follow his fate and be crucified. 120 would not die. 120 would be faithful. 120 were united together regularly in prayer, waiting for the very gift 
that Jesus promised that would be the means of expansion. Have that image in your mind, and you'll be reminded of it and see it grow over the next eight weeks. Let's continue reading. Verse 16. As Peter stood among the 120, as they were gathered together, probably in a service like this, don't think upper room, think probably still secretive, but in a big location, maybe even a synagogue, they're together and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. Not Judas, the brother of James, that was mentioned in Judas Iscariot, the bad Judas. Scriptures had to be fulfilled about him, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus, his followers. He was one of our number and shared in us. Our ministry, this is powerful. Verse 17 is big, don't miss it. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. I know it's graphic. Verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem, take note of that. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Apeldama, that is, field of love. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, but, well, let there be no one to dwell in it, but may another take his place of leadership. So, as Peter is gathering together with the 120, and they're praying regularly, they stop, and they realize We've got some old business to take care of. We're waiting for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. But as they were praying, I am sure without it being even written there that they had direction from God reminding them there's some old business to take care of. Peter's probably sitting there thinking right before he gets up, he's blessing them, saying, watch them say, you will be my witnesses, the representatives, the, the, the ambassadors that embody the very image of who Jesus is. And, and, and we ought to act like him, be loving and kind and truthful and, and, and long-suffering and not wicked and not lie and not betrayers. Betrayer. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Betrayer, betrayer, betrayer. Judas, who was one of us, he was one of our own numbers. He was one of the 12. He was with us everywhere. His face was with us. People knew him. They recognized him. They allotted him with our group because he was one of our own brothers. He was in our ministry. But now everybody knows that name. They know that name as the betrayer. They know that one who bought that field. And who died in that field. We got some old business to take care of. There's some stains. Jerusalem had an image of Judas. Peter recognized that. You know, we don't want the dirt of the past to visit our future. So let's clean up what's happened. And he goes on in verses 21 through 26. And it says, therefore... It's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. But one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
not a witness of betrayal, a witness of resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, and they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belonged. They cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Church, here's my final point for you today. As the church moves forward, what old business do you need to take back? We're moving forward. Every Christian community ought to be moving forward. If we're stuck in the past, we're not being obedient to God. We're fixated on what was, and there's beauty, and there is help, as Isaiah talks about when looking to the past. But it cannot dictate the actual steps that we make moving forward. And sometimes there are aspects of our past that we've got to just be honest about and say, you know what? All of Jerusalem sees us that way. I don't want to care. And nor should we care what people think about us. They're always going to have a bad image about us. But when something sloppy happens in our house, we've got to own it. We've got to clean it up and we've got to move forward. And Peter said, moving forward means let's start new. We got two guys here who got a good heart. But ultimately, God's going to choose. So let's pray. Let's pray. They nominated, they prayed, they cast, and they had their new apostle. And so I, I just, I read all that and I just think, man, that, that transcends to so many aspects of our lives individually where God is telling us to do something. And maybe you've taken that first step and you've obeyed and now you're in the process of waiting. You're saying, okay, God, I want to do this, but I'm not going to do it because that, that's a part of my past that I, I know was good, but I, I don't need to revisit that business. It's, it's done. That was the way that it was done when you were here. Now you want me to wait because you've got something new. Okay, I'm waiting. I'm praying. Oh, God, that reminds me. There is that part of our past that's lingering. God, help us to handle it. Help us to do something about it. As they prayed, God showed them. I've got a gift to empower you to be my witnesses, but right now your witness is tarnished. You've got to handle it. You've got to take care of it. So I, I don't know what's in this place in your heart. That's between you and the Lord. I'm just here to show you the word. And remember, don't, don't let anything get in the way of it right now. Don't let, don't let your traditions past. Don't, don't let your preference that maybe you learned in the past don't let what you prefer now, whether it may be even good, just, just trust me for a moment. Put it aside. Don't let pride enter in right now. Don't. If you do, you're going to miss what God wants to do. Humbly come before the Lord right now and just say, God, here I am. Here I am. I've, I've got a lot that, that keeps coming back to my mind, but Lord, I, I, I take captive every thought and I make it obedient to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you take that thought. If it's what you want me to think, then you'll handle that. If it's not, get it out. Every time it comes back, get it out. I need to hear your voice right now. 
I don't need to hear the voice of people in my life that I don't need to be listening to right now. I don't need to hear the voice of my past right now. I don't need to hear the voice of promises of the future that weren't from your mouth that might be good, might be bad. I don't need to hear any of that. God, I just, I need to look to your word. Your word says for me to do this. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the empowerment of the spirit, which will give me the audacity, the power, the unashamed attitude to step out into Jerusalem, no longer worried about what anybody thinks about me because I did things the right way. And I followed your will. And now I go forward, and if people don't like us, if they have an image of us because of faithfulness, not because of betrayal, because of truth, not because of lies, because of righteousness, not because of wickedness, I'm okay with that. Because that's who you were, and that's who I'm called to be. That's what I'm unashamed of. and represents is the past. And really, let me say it this way, communion is about making the past present because it's remembering the body that was broken. It's remembering the blood that was spilt in the past that transcends time, that has present power for us today. So when we take communion, this is the part of our past that we do not negotiate about. We do not hesitate to talk about. We do not begin to falter when it comes to honor. This is a part of our past that we stand unified under, saying always, will I remember what Christ did for me and will I honor it? But here's what we need to remember when we as believers partake of communion. If you're not a believer, don't feel led partake of this it's okay you don't need to this is for those that have chosen to follow jesus in fact it's important that you don't partake of it because in first corinthians the apostle paul instructs us to do so when you partake of the body of christ you need to do so with the right heart and in the right manner it's not just something you do it's not just something that you do at the expense of others nor should it ever be when you partake of communion it represents what christ stood for sacrifice giving your all or anybody in need. And Paul says, that's why some of you have fallen asleep. Literally, it says died. I don't know what you want to do with that. I'm not going to try and explain that one away. That's like a big phenomenon. Some of you have partaken communion in utter sin and selfishness, and some of you have fallen asleep. That's the colloquialism for dead. I'm not going to try to explain that one away. I'm sorry if that just crazed our minds, but I don't want to, I don't want to change God's word for the sake of right here, right now. What does that mean? Give it all to God. It's not that you've sinned so greatly to the extent that he says you can never partake of what I've done for you. No, no, no. It's if you will just admit your need for me and confess your sin, believer present or not, confess. Then when you partake, this is the representation of I'm no longer a slave to that sin. Lord, I remember what you did for me. 
bread represents the body that was broken for us. The punishment that we will never have to endure should we choose to trust in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your body that was broken for me. Jesus, I pray that we would never take it for granted. In Jesus' name. Church, let's partake of this bread together. the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The blood represents the atonement. The blood represents the means, the gateway to heaven. The blood represents the very substance that set us free once and for all. Should we call on Jesus? Jesus call on you right now. I ask you to enter into my heart, my life, my mind. Would your presence ever be in me, ever be in my thoughts? And together, would you be in us? Would you remind us? Would you lead us? I pray that when we falter, when we fail, make mistakes, we would remember who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, that we are free in Christ. Church, let's partake of this cup together. Ushers will receive. And if we can just close our time together, just reflecting for a moment. And let's just sing that together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.